Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. Today's guest got me thinking about how we use cookbooks beyond the recipes. Yes, we want to make delicious meals from our cookbooks, but many of them are also just wonderful books to read. They can immerse us in another time or place through the food they describe and the stories the author tells us. Our guest today writes books that are as adventurous as they are delicious. Andy Ricker started visiting Thailand over 20 years ago and fell so in love with the food and the people of the place that he opened the James Beard Award-winning Pok Pok Restaurant in Portland, Oregon, and now even lives in Thailand part-time. His third cookbook, Pok Pok Noodles, explores dishes that are lesser known outside their home country. He's in conversation with one of our regular contributors, Warren Etheridge. It's a great conversation about living abroad, the challenges of the restaurant industry, and why Andy rejects the term authentic when describing the food he cooks. I hope you enjoy it. I know a little bit of your history. You didn't go over there until you were 23 or 24 or so, I believe. Something like that. I, you, you, you have a better lock on it than me. I can't really remember. <laughs> but I'm curious because you were born in North Carolina, spent a lot of time in Vermont. I can't imagine you had much exposure to Thai food before going there, mm. did you? First of all, I've got to say that I don't, I don't consider myself an expert okay. on Thai food. That's, that's a tag that I've been given. I still consider myself a student of Thai food. The more you learn, the more you realize how little you actually know. So start with that. No, I had not been really exposed to uh, much in the way of Thai food before I went to Thailand. I, I think the only time I'd really had it uh, before the first time I went was at a Thai restaurant in L.A. sometime in the, in the mid-80s, so early 80s. And did you know you loved it in that moment? No, yeah. no, no. I, didn't, I didn't know I loved it. I, I didn't. I mean, the first time I went, it wasn't really about food. Yeah. I, I ate because I had to, and it was nice to have this good food, but it, my main reason being there had nothing to do with the food. It was backpacker dream of some sort, beaches and jungles and stuff like that. So more a Leo DiCaprio, the beach sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's that, that though not as mystic. You know. <laughs> In calling yourself a student, uh, you mention I want to pronounce it uh, correctly. Ajahn Suni is that uh, Ajahn Suni, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is one of your earliest mentors. What did you learn from Ajahn? From Ajahn Suni, I, I think I, I learned some of the basics of Thai cooking. She's, she's a really interesting character. She's a, she's a professor of uh, essentially home economics at um, Chiang Mai University. And she's a very sort of workmanlike or workwoman-like cook. Just to say that she knows she has like a pretty broad knowledge of what is, uh, what is there. She was a friend of the family. And I, th- I think what I what I learned from her was just sort of like some basic Northern Thai dishes, nothing too esoteric. Like I think she taught me how to make kasoi. The way that she taught me was that she had a recipe that she got out of a book, and then we did that together. Right. <laughs> so she was she was kind of like the the not an intuitive cook as much as other people that I knew, but she really knew a lot and would take me to the market and kind of show me, show me stuff. And she was just one of many people. That, that kind of helped me along initially. The other way that you've learned a lot is clearly through very intense immersion mm. <laughs> into the food. Yeah. And it sounds, on, on one hand, it sounds really thrilling, and on, on the other hand, grueling. Like, you really put yourself through the paces when you're investigating one of these dishes. It's not like I go and I, this week I'm going to learn this dish. Mm. It Sometimes it unfolds over years. 
Right. I, I've been kind of at this since 1992. And I think the long, slow approach to it has, has kind of helped me to really understand better the, the workings of Thai cuisine. It allows you to not just learn a dish, but learn all the ingredients of the Thai pantry. You know, not all of them. There's all the stuff that pops up that I've never heard of before. But, you know, learning about the various different things in the, the markets so that when it's time to start cooking, you already have a knowledge of the things that go into it. And I think that's probably what has helped me to, to kind of comprehend. But I'm, I'm a slow learner, and I don't mean that like I'm stupid, <laughs> though some might say I am. I, uh, I just I really feel like it's important to, to really take your time and learn. Facts are fluid, and like the proper way to do something is, is elusive or if not, if not non-existent. So taking, taking the long, slow trip through the cuisine has been the way that I've, I've been able to do justice to the food as, as best I can. And clearly you've done that over decades, but in the book, there are a couple <clears throat> recipes. I think it's laksa nyanya. Nyanya, yeah. Where you talk about making a day of you're going to hit as many spots as you possibly can. Mm. And I was curious, like, at some point, how do you know what you're tasting? Like, how do you discern, oh, that was a better one than that one? <laughs> because of the years before that okay. spent traveling, tasting food, you develop a palate, you develop an understanding so that, that when you do go and you have a day of like going tasting, uh, I mean, of course, everything is, is highly subjective, right? So my opinion, that was the best version that I had that I think I talk about in there. But I think it's just, it's a matter of building up experience and a palate. And then when you taste something that's special, you can recognize it, I think. My favorite part of that story, though, is that you find the best because of a cab driver. Right, right. But apparently you've never heard of pen and paper <laughs> right. to write it down. Yeah. <laughs> at the time, that was pre-cell phone or pre-smartphone anyway. I think I might have had a I might have had a flip phone or something at that point. And I think it, and it buried somewhere in a journal somewhere there may be the name of the place. I, but, you know. Who knows? So I, I'm curious because I love finding a good hole-in-the-wall restaurant wherever I go. When you're traveling or when you're in Thailand, how do you recognize, oh, that may be the best one? Or do you just try them all? Because it seems like you've tried all of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, after years and years of travel and experience, I think that you, you develop something that uh, my friend Austin Bush, who was the photographer on all these books, and also he, I'm, I bet you it's here somewhere, but he wrote a book called The Food of Northern Thailand that just came out recently, mm -hmm. which if you haven't seen it yet, I'm contractually obligated to plug every time I do one of these. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's a really, really good book. Anyway, both of us kind of, there's a spidey sense that you mm -hmm. get. And you, you start looking for various signs that the place might be good. Uh, if it's old and busy, that's mm -hmm. usually a pretty good sign because it means that they've been doing their thing for a long time and people are still going. You, you look for cues based on, you know, the type of food it is. Uh, and and that, that one's a little bit more long and drawn out, difficult to explain. But if like, for instance, you're looking for Bami Hang Shop, a Chinese dry noodle place with barbecue pork. If you see the, the neon pink barbecue pork hanging in the window, probably not going to be great. But if you find a place that has old school barbecue pork that looks real, you know, it's like a dark mahogany red color and it's dripping a little bit of fat and they're hand rolling the dumplings or something like that, or they're making the noodles, that's a pretty good sign. And then aside from that, I think what happens is rather than being able to identify something that's really good, you start being able to identify places that probably aren't very good. Right. <laughs> and you go off of cues. One of the things that's really sort of surprising about, especially noodle 
noodle shops and carts and stuff in Thailand is that there's a bunch of them on the street that are actually uh, franchise carts that are serviced by CP, which is this massive food conglomerate. Uh, and they're in the business of buying up various different franchises. And then you buy, you buy your broth, you buy your meat, you buy your dumplings, you buy your seasoning, everything from them. And then you just kind of crank it out and you, and then they're spread out all over the country. But if, if you don't read Thai, you're not really aware that this is true. You might think that you're having the ultimate mom and pop experience, but it's like eating at McDonald's essentially. It's like McDonald's for noodles. So you, you start to identify what the crap is. Right. And then you can start winnowing out. <laughs> if I want to find a good Thai place in the United States outside of Portland, because I know where to go to Portland, uh, <laughs> how would I do that? Well, I think one of the things to maybe do is question the Thai friend. And what okay. you'll probably find is that they, they go to a lot of different places. And they go to one place for this dish, right. another place for this dish. That's quite often the thing, because often Thai restaurants here are uh, very commerce-minded and what they're trying to do is appeal to as many people as they can. So they, that's why there's 150 things on the menu, right? But somewhere, there's a cook in there that specializes in something. That's what the Thai people go there for. So, for instance, if you go to, in L.A., you go to Sap Coffee Shop. That, everybody goes there for the boat noodles. That's their thing. Uh, when you go to Sanam Luang, you go there for fried rice and stuff like that. Seattle, I'm not so sure, to be honest with you. <laughs> and to be really honest, I rarely eat Thai food in the United States just because I live there so much. I'd rather eat Vietnamese food or, or regional Chinese food or, as we were talking about earlier, Ethiopian food yeah. or something like that. You do taste your food in your own restaurant, sort of. I do, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I do. Though it's funny, you it, like talk to enough chefs and you'll find out that we rarely eat in our own restaurants. It's too stressful <laughs> to, go, <laughs> to go and sit in the dining room. <laughs> you find yourself hopping up and going to the kitchen and yelling. Uh, not really, but, but yeah. But I taste everything, right? Yeah. That I have to, of course. Right, quality yeah. assurance yeah, of some of course, sort. Yeah. What is the hardest thing for an American chef to learn about uh, making Thai food? Because it seems to me that the degree of difficulty for taking on Thai food, if you haven't done before, is, is relatively high. I think that the most difficult thing is really just learning about the ingredients and mm -hmm. understanding what, what they do. If you've never messed with, with fish sauce... You probably don't want to just kind of be throwing it in stuff randomly. Learning the cuisine, learning how to work with the products is probably the hardest thing. Thai food's actually quite quite simple. Uh, it looks complicated because it's not part of, like, you probably don't have a, uh, a pantry that's the Thai pantry or the tools that you need to make it. So it seems intimidating. But think about it this way. The best food that I've had in Thailand is made in a kitchen that is basically maybe two charcoal dao burners a wooden mortar and pestle, a stone mortar and pestle, a cutting board, and a knife. And that's essentially it. So executing it is not technically difficult. A lot of the, a lot of the techniques are very Stone Age, like literally Stone Age. It's just learning the subtleties of the, of the flavors and stuff. Um, so that, that would be my advice. Learn the product. Learn the, learn the mise en place. And there are lots of tips on both the pantry and what uh, equipment you'll need to do this. I, I, one of my favorite lines is that uh, if you live in a place with an electric stove, consider moving. Uh, so that's clearly <laughs> that's clearly out. It's, but it's not it's not a deal killer totally. I mean, uh, you just have to get the right kind of pot and pan at that point. But it, it is you know considerably more difficult to execute some of the dishes uh, with an electric stove. You have called yourself a, a real copycat of uh, Thai food. 
But you've also talked about that your sweet spot is between the familiar and the novel. How do you maintain authenticity while bringing your own flair to it? Okay, so to preface this, I will, I will say this. In, in the in Pock Pock restaurants, we, the word authentic is banned. We don't use it. And we don't, we don't strive for authenticity. I think what we strive for is sort of accurate expressions of the cuisine. You know, I guess part of it is menu selection, kind of figuring out what it is that, that people uh, in the West will like, but push them a little bit. For instance, I, I don't put Namprika Pete on the menu at Pak Pak. This is a shrimp paste Namprik that's often served with uh, boiled vegetables and dried fish or, or just like a, a slightly boiled or grilled fish. Um, because, the, the, frankly, the flavor is really challenging for most people in the West. Uh, it's very funky. It's very spicy. There's not a whole lot of reference point there for us uh, as Westerners. But you go to Thailand, and that's in, the, in, the, in central Thailand, that's a ubiquitously loved dish. So I just pick and choose. Like, what, what is it that I think that is both interesting and also approachable? Because I have to be commercially minded, too. I, I have to appeal to a relatively broad audience of people because you know, I have employees and family to support. And, and I think early on, my realization was that if I just start kicking people in the teeth with, with like the stuff that I really love there, that it probably won't get very far. I have, you know, there'll be certainly be people that really dig it, but at some point, and, and, the, and the other part of it too, is like trying to find the ingredients right. to do stuff. And if, you, if you're choosing things that are really kind of esoteric and, and like hyper-specific, you're going to be relying on herbs and vegetables primarily that are really difficult to come by here. But you make a point in the book that most of the pantry now is available yes. if you happen to live in, say, Seattle, mm -hmm. and you have access to a good Asian specialty market. Yeah, these days, I mean, when I, when I started, it was a far different story. Right. When I first started developing ideas about how it would go, that was 20, 25 years ago. And the restaurants have been open for 13, 14 years now. These days, you know, there's been a lot more Southeast Asian uh, immigration. The advent of entertainment television and media have made people more interested. There's been a broader acceptance of, of cuisines like that in, in the mainstream. And so there's more of a market for products, so there's more product available. Uh, the other thing is that there's the internet. You can go on Amazon.com and, and order kefir lime leaves. Uh, so it's not And like, you can have yeah. them within a day. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, if you live in Omaha and you need, you know, a special kind of shrimp paste or fish sauce, you can get it, or palm sugar. There's no real barrier to doing most of this stuff if you're tenacious. I'll, I'll give you one uh, example. Probably about three or four years ago, I got contacted by a Polish couple who had emigrated to Iceland, and they had recreated every dish in the Pock Pock cookbook, taken pictures of it, and sent me like a desktop published book of all this stuff. It's crazy. So if, if, you're, if you're... I was waiting for a punchline, but it actually does have one. Yeah. If, <laughs> if, if, you're, if you're... So, yeah. If a Polish couple in Iceland can recreate the Pock Pock cookbook, then I think, you know, pretty good chance you can do it here. <laughs> Quite the knockoff business yeah, they have going yeah. there. <laughs> but given your, your status, we won't call you an expert, but you have status in, in the realm of making Thai Notoriety, food. maybe? <laughs> right. I think it's better than that. Yeah. In representing Thai food in this country, do you feel any obligation to bring a dish like yen ta pho here? Something that is common over there, mm -hmm. but not known here. Well, I tried. I noticed there's a gentleman <laughs> here wearing a, a, a Senyai t-shirt. Mm -hmm. And uh, Senyai was a 
a noodle restaurant we owned in Portland, and it was actually the the basis for this book. The first book came out, and then I went to Ten Speed and said, "Hey, how about two more books?" Loosely based on the Whiskey Soda Lounge, which became the Drinking Food of Thailand, and then the second one, Pak Pak Noodles, which was based on Senyai. And we did just that. Like uh, Yentofo at the time was probably one of the most popular noodle dishes in Thailand because it's quick and easy to make. But you never saw it here. It really was. It was unusual. And if you did see it, it usually wasn't a very good version of it. So I was determined to kind of make it and bring it. And I did. And to be honest with you, it was the, the, the noodle that sold the least on the entire menu. No matter how well I explained it, how hard we tried to sell it, people just were more interested in Petsu. What are you going to do? It's always going to be that way. It's always going to be that way. <laughs> but I did not take it off the menu. I kept it on the menu because I, th- I thought it was really important to have stuff on the menu that, that people, if they felt like it, could try something new and different. That they could branch out. Yeah, they? exactly. And that's always been my goal. It's like, hey, the gateway drug is the PEDCU. Let's get you. Next time you come in, let's try to push you towards the, <laughs> the Suki Hang or the, the Yentofo. <laughs> Maybe we should have a little map so people can follow that. Yeah. Start here, <laughs> work your way through yeah. on your next visit. You have said that uh, Willie Nelson is one of the uh, greatest Americans who's ever lived. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you were to dine with him, would you make him the Thai chicken noodle soup with black chicken and ganja? Ah, that's, yeah, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. Um, I mean, I think I'd probably just want to know what Willie likes to eat. Right. <laughs> Imagining he has a hard time chewing these days. <laughs> Yet he always has the munchies. He it's always a weird has the munchies, thing. Yeah. <laughs> do you have Do you have your own fallback uh, dish? Like if you you said you rarely eat Thai food here, and you won't mm-hmm. eat in your own restaurant. But if you did have to, if you were wanted to whip something up for yourself, right? I've actually got really kind of simple desires typically, and one of the ones that one of the things that I I really kind of like crave is. Uh, cow pot or stir fried rice and it's just it's one of those things that i just if i just want something really basic that's kind of what i want is a thai style fried rice and then after that when we're at home in chiang mai we eat a lot of vegetables from the garden either stir fried or boiled or steamed the the kind of dish that that i crave that i don't often make for myself is kwetio kuakai is one of the recipes in here it's like eating chicken and dumplings basically it's that kind of it's like deep soul food that's the kind of thing that I kind of crave. When you you often travel with friends and fellow food knowledgeable folks, if you're going around with Austin or with uh, David Thompson, mm-hmm. are you talking about food the whole time or are you just enjoying each other's company? Yeah, we're not talking about food the whole time. We're usually yeah. talking about something a little more risque than that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so it's not like having Statler and Waldorf go to every Thai restaurant and critique every single no, dish. No, but but you know, as as people who who like food is your life. I mean, this is this is kind of cautionary tale. <laughs> if you get too deep into this stuff, it stops being as fun. To be honest with you, you sit down and you start. You know, you can't help yourself. It's like being a musician and recording three albums, and then every time you listen to a record, you're listening for production value. And how did they mic that? And it's the same thing in a restaurant. You walk into a restaurant, you start noticing stuff that you're not supposed to notice, right? Like, what's the lighting like? <laughs> Where, <laughs> you know? So while I try to just let the experience happen, I often end up being a little bit hyper analytical. And that can sometimes get in the way of, of, uh, of just enjoying meal. But I can also say that when you do walk in, everything's right. It's, it's, it's like fireworks going off. So, hmm. yeah. So you can still have that magic. Oh yeah. It yeah. just takes, it, it just has to be kind of special in some sort of way. 
So you never think about going back to being a painting contractor? Oh, I think about it every day. <laughs> I think about it all the really? time. Hey, when your kitchen manager calls in sick five minutes before the shift, you know, yeah. I start thinking about, geez, I could just go and just be a house painter, <laughs> listen to Kelly Willis all day long, <laughs> dream, daydream. <That's> just... <laughs> yeah. Good to have something to aspire yeah, to, yeah. certainly. But you did the painting for a long time, but you've really been doing, uh, working in the food industry since you were 15. Yeah. But the first job I believe was working as a dishwasher in a fondue restaurant. It was the first or second. I think it was yeah. the first. Yeah. And at that time you can, Oh, this is the place for me. Oh no. I, I thought I, I, this is obviously not the place for me because I was terrible at it. And I think after my first shift, I was like drenched in water and there was still a giant pile of dishes and, you guys eat fondue. You know what happens to a fondue pot when it sits on the burner. All I was sitting there scrubbing fondue pots. And, and I think the next job I had was as a busser slash banquet server at the ski resort. They hired us, me and my friend Brian. You know, we were going to be bussers slash banquet servers. But first, they had to get the kitchen back open. And they're like, there's something that smells bad in the kitchen. You guys go find it. So we found it. It was two-month-old clam chowder. Um, yeah, that was, that was my other introduction. But, you know, I made it through that. And I stayed, it was I that evening special. Yeah, I made it through it. I stuck with it. And so yeah. I guess there was some kind of, maybe it was just malaise or something. Or, uh, or Malaysia. Malaysia. <laughs> anyway. I'm curious. So there are a lot of chefs and certainly uh, many here in Seattle who have a, uh, a certain level of success and uh, specializing in one thing and then suddenly have 13 restaurants mm-hmm. doing lots of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you uh, don't seem to have been tempted by that. You did expand, talk about briefly, and mm-hmm. then sort of come back to Portland. Mm-hmm. But you don't have that temptation? Well, the, I, I learned my lesson early on, like probably, I think it was a third restaurant, fourth restaurant I was involved in in Portland was a burger joint called Foster Burger. Still there, actually. And it came about because at the time, my partner at Whiskey Soda Lounge Kurt Huffman, chef stable, who now has his fingers in like you know, two dozen or three dozen different restaurants. We had an opportunity. Like this place came up and the lease was cheap and said, what, what do you think you would want to do there? And it's like, the only thing I think of doing is a rock and roll burger place. So we did that. And a year later, I was just like, I can't, I can't ever do something like this. It divides my brain too much. I, ca- I can't think about this and think about Pock Pock at the same time. You know, we did a swap. He took Foster Burger. I took Whiskey Soda Lounge and that's it. I'm- so you're done with that? Yeah. There's yeah. not going to be like an Italian food cart. No. <laughs> no. Even, you know, my, my, my history, like my background in cooking, quite honestly, I, up until we opened Pock Pock was more on the side of potentially opening a pasta place than, than doing this. Noodles, all sort of the same. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating Thai food, and I'm sort of, and that's a broad spectrum, I realize, but that there's a great debt owed to the Chinese, really, for, sure. for most of that food. To me, I've talked a lot and done a lot of conversations about Israeli food, which mm-hmm. is a thing or not a thing, depending on how you right, on who right, you ask. Right, yeah. Does Thai food sort of fit in that category? Like it's just the influences of a ton of other places? Well, I think first of all, when you, when you say Thai food, you mean one thing. And when I say Thai food, I right. mean another thing. So when I, when I say Thai food, what I'm referring to is the food of central Thailand. This is the, the Thai people. The food of Thailand is something different to me. So just get that out of the way to start with. In general, the food of Thailand is has seen as much influence from outside forces as any cuisine. 
uh, as much as, uh, say, Spanish food has seen influence from the Moors and stuff like that. It's just that Thai people tend to take cuisines that, that come from elsewhere and make them work for, the, for them. And that, and that continues to this day. You, you have probably one of the most popular types of restaurants in Thailand right now is uh, Mugatat, which means it's like a grilled pork place but it's a buffet style so it's kind of like a kind of like sukiyaki or or tapanyaki or whatever mm-hmm. but it's not well you go you go sit down and it's decidedly not japanese at all it's mm-hmm. thai the flavors the way they cook the way they approach it the ingredients is very very thai but it's definitely not something that they invented and as far as specifically the chinese influence i mean basically all noodles in Thailand are, are Chinese in origin, except kanom jin. Even though in China they make the same thing too. But the thinking is that kanom jin, or fresh rice from a celly, uh, was probably the only dish, the only noodle that was really kind of indigenous to, to Thailand, to Southeast Asia. I'd like to open up for the audience for questions. Yes. I'm interested in your story on how you designed the building in your restaurant, because it is mm. more of an experience Right. I wanted Pop-Rock to be something that wasn't just the food. I wanted it to be kind of like a, a transport of experience. And I wanted it to be contextual. I wanted, wanted you to eat the food the way you would eat in Thailand. So the dishes, the size of the portions, the utensils that you're given, the way the menu's laid out, how you order all that kind of stuff was really important to me. And, you know, very luckily, the places that I like the best in Thailand tend to be very simple. If you go, if you go to a, quote, Thai restaurant in Thailand, there's not sculptures of a woman wine like this. And there's not like big, <laughs> big banners and sculptures of elephants everywhere with a sign saying Thai food. <laughs> Often it's a shop house that's minimally decorated or, or not decorated at all in a way that we would think of as decoration. Maybe there's some calendars on the wall and a picture of the king and queen on the other one, and then maybe a shrine, maybe uh, shelves filled with 25-year-old cosmetics that they're selling on the side. <laughs> but that's where the good food is. And when, So when we opened Pak Pak, there are two things going. Number one, I wanted to, to kind of like not conk you over the head with Thailand. But I wanted it to feel like you were in Thailand. So luckily, the other, the other part of it was I didn't have any money. <laughs> so doing things like minimally decorating and then putting oil cloth on the table just made sense to me, right? Because my favorite places in Thailand were just oil cloth on top of a, of a table and melamine plates and cheap spoon and forks. I was able to, to do that and keep the budget low, but also give you that vibe a little bit. That's how, where it came from. I didn't hire a designer or anything like that. There wasn't a specific place. There was just a specific, there was just kind of like a general vibe that, that I, that I wanted to do. That was, that was how we came up with the aesthetic. Yes, sir. So can you talk a little bit about the business of being a restaurateur today? Business of being, I'd rather not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, don't, if you guys, any of you are thinking about opening a restaurant, don't. That's my that's my advice to you. And people often come to me and say, "Hey, I want to, you know, I'm going to open a restaurant. What do you think?" And mostly they want me to go, "Go follow your dreams." <laughs> but most of the time, I just say, "Forget about it. Just don't do it." Being a restaurateur has never been a, a you know an easy job. I don't want to complain, uh, and that's why I don't like talking about it very much. But it is an extremely difficult industry to be in. I think in Seattle, a lot of the chefs that I know up here are experiencing what everybody else experiences, which is that the economy and the you know the housing and et cetera are such that it's very difficult to find cooks because 
I'll keep this brief, but there's, there's a disconnect between what people expect to pay for food and what it costs to make food, <laughs> especially in a place like this. So if you go into a Thai restaurant and you expect to pay $12 for a green curry, but you also want people to get paid $22 an hour, there's a massive rub there, okay? That, that is, that's the problem. So your profit margins are razor thin, and it doesn't take much for you to go out of business. You see the restaurants open and close quickly, right? And it's just, you have to love it in some sort of weird masochistic way in order to do it. Restaurants are as good as an investment as independent film. Exactly. Always, <laughs> always a winner. You could, it, you could just go take a, a bag of money and get somebody to film you while you throw it uh, off the bridge. That's right. That's right. <laughs> kind of a good analogy. Right, go. yeah. Now, I heard a hint of an issue when publishing the first book, I believe, that there was actually a fight over the photo yes. for the cover. That, How did you hear that? Well, I... <laughs> I dig deep. <laughs> so here, we're, we're going to pull back the curtain a little bit on book publishing. When, you're, when you do a, a cookbook, you really want to have creative control. There's one thing the publishers will never give up, and that is the cover. They, they have final say on the cover and the photographs because that's the only selling tool they have. Is when you look around here, when I mean, you look, look at all these books, these have all been designed like crazy to draw your eye to it because... What, you know, if you just put bong appetit, right, with no pretty picture of buds on the front, it, it's only going to appeal to a few people. But if it looks pretty, you're going to pick it up and go, what's this thing, right? On the first book, we had our, our, our original photographer, Austin. We did, there wasn't a photo that he did that was going to, going to work, and we tried. And I really wanted a mortar and pestle on the cover because, to me, pock pock is the sound of a pestle hitting a mortar. It kind of emblemizes uh, what cooking in the, in, the, in the Thai kitchen is all about. We couldn't get it. The, the, the publisher insisted on, he gave me a list of three photographers. And if you look around here, probably those three photographers have shot a <laughs> large percentage of these books. Peden and Monk, uh, Eric Wolfinger, I think they gave me one other person. And they said, you have to hire this guy <laughs> because you didn't get the, the cover shot. So, and, and he came and shot. And I won't go into the, grit, the gory details of what happened at that shoot, but essentially it ended up with me on the phone with, with my editor kind of yelling back and forth. Really? Uh, yeah, it got pretty heated. <laughs> and it's not uncommon for this to happen. I, I mean, I know a lot of cookbook authors who've ended up in very heated uh, kind of conversations with the but, publisher but which part, over the what, cover. What was upsetting you? What was, what was happening that was upsetting you? Um... It, it, I mean, it's, it's mostly petty when you come to this kind of thing. It's, that it's that makes me all the more curious. And at, the, <laughs> at the end of the day, the publisher just wants something that is, is going to sell the book. Right. And you as a cookbook author want something that, that epitomizes, that represents what's in the book and what's in your heart and what's in your mind. And all. When you, you do your first cookbook, it's kind of like, I'll, I'll make the band analogy again. You've been playing in the basement for 10 years. You've worked up the set list. And it's the best of what you've done so far. It really, like you've put everything into it and you just want everything about it to be perfect and you want to control every aspect of it. That was it. I just wanted something that, I wanted the, the mortar and pestle in a, in a natural setting. That was really important wow. to me that it be somewhere where, <laughs> and basically this guy just came and threw everything on a table and went bam like that, charged me $4,000. So, you know, um, but at the end of the day, he got exactly what the publisher wanted, right? We couldn't give them what they wanted. There's certain things about a cover photo that you need. You need negative space so the text fits in. It has to be colorful. It has to be representative. It has to show food. 
typically. That's been the, the way of thought. And this was in, this was published in 2013, especially back then. That was the, the, the main thought. Your cookbook has to have food on the cover. Now it's not so not so important. You, you see a lot of books these days that don't have food on the cover. But at that time, it was it was hyper important. But at the end of the day, they got exactly what they wanted. And, you know, I, I've gr- grown to be fond of it. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm curious, uh, we rewatched the show that you did with Bourdain, mm. which is so sad. But I just wonder if you can pull back the curtain on that at all. I can. I feel like I'm going to just keep on pulling back the curtain and, and disappointing people. <laughs> uh, the thing about food TV is that when you look at, at that show, it was 40 minutes or something like that. And it looks like super action-packed, fun, blah, blah. but actually it's a lot of hurry up and wait. There's a lot of like, hey, can you do that again? Make it look more spontaneous. <laughs> um, <laughs> it wasn't that there wasn't good times to be had during that time. We captured most of the good times on camera. But, but what I can say, and this is, this is a bit sad, is that, that Tony's life was a lot of sitting in vans, sitting in hotel rooms, sitting on airplanes by himself. Okay, so he had a real, like, despite the fact that when he's on camera and when he walked down the street, he's surrounded by people. He lived a pretty solitary life. And, you know, it's like doing that, being the talent in something like that is like, you kind of have to be, you got to be on. Camera rolls, you got to be on. You've got to be ready to be on. But a lot of the time you spend is actually just being completely off. And he, I, don't, I don't think he had a particularly happy life. Even though he was really driven, and, and that was like obviously a huge part of his life was doing these shows, and he had something to say. Uh, he did spend a lot of time, I think, in relatively isolated and, and not super happy circumstances. But I will say this: like I did ask him, you know, various times over the over the time that that I knew him. Do, like everybody thinks you have the best job in the world. What do you think? And he said, yeah, absolutely. This is the, like, this is the best job I could possibly have. And it's amazing. So he did, he did appreciate his circumstance and he really tried to do, do justice by it. You've, you finished your trilogy. I just was wondering if you do have another book. <laughs> I was thinking about it. I was like, it seems like I've been doing this forever. And it was eight years. I've been working on it for eight years. So by the time you conceive of a book, pitch it to the publisher get the deal, do the proposal, all this kind of stuff, publish, promote, all that kind of stuff. It, usually about two hours, two, two, two years, sorry, two hours. I wish it was two hours. <laughs> two years time for each book. And then life interferes and, and you have to push your deadline, your, your delivery date back or the publisher pushes it back. So essentially, you know, about eight years worth of writing books. And uh, I kind of feel like I've said what I have to say for now. And, and I, I'm trying to simplify life a little bit, like trying not to be doing as many things as I've been doing in the past. So unlikely another book's coming down the pike at any time in the near future. And I'm pretty happy with what we've done. I think that it covers not only kind of the story of, of Pok Pok restaurants, but also all three of my favorite ways of eating in Thailand, which is to say more homey Northern Thai food and then drinking food that I love to go out. And that goes for other cultures as well. I, I love in Japanese food, I love going to isekayas and eating that kind of thing. Going to Singapore, I love to go to Kapi Tiem, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, the noodles, which is something that I eat every day for lunch or breakfast or whatever like that when I'm in Thailand. So it kind of it covers all the things I like, tells the story of the, of the, the restaurants, and it also kind of 
covers a pretty broad spectrum of, of Thai cuisine. So. We've learned a lot today, but for those who are uh, hungry to learn more, I suggest buying all three books if you don't already have them, and uh, go to Portland because there's some fantastic food there. Thanks to Andy Ricker. Thank, Thank you, you very much. <laughs> Thank you to Andy Ricker for visiting us in Seattle, to Warren Etheridge for the fantastic interview, and to 10Speed Press for sending Andy to us. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Pock Pock Noodles and any other books featured on the Booklarder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, please visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Lara Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.